Hello, I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Blue Box Podcast. And as a result, I don't have to. Thank you. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Lee. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm Simon. And this is really confusing me for this week because uh, Lee and Mark have changed places, so every time Lee starts speaking, I look away. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> uh, this, confuse you. this week, we promised we were going to be talking about John Nathan Turner, didn't we? JNT, the mighty. Right, before we start, I'd just like to reiterate Jeremy Bentham's ethos as stated at the start of his production of envision magazine and what was that where he said i don't know if i've said this on the podcast before but it's something that ever since i read it i've always held to and i'd like to state it at the start of this episode because who knows which way this episode's gonna go but he said nobody ever sets out to make a bad doctor who story sometimes it just happens in other words you know, at the start of the production of every single story, the writer, the director, everybody else is aiming to make something good. Of course, they don't always succeed, but it's always been my ethos that you should look for the good. So they're going in with the best of intentions. Exactly so. Mm. Apart from uh, time in the Rani. Oh, they still went in with the best of intentions. <laughs> the best of intentions, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, he didn't rise to it. Tarnation. Anyway, we had an email from Steve from Manchester, Hi, which we were going to read out last week, but we didn't have time. So I said immediately when I saw how long it was, we'd put it back to this week and this episode's going to overrun like crazy anyway. So why not start off with a fairly lengthy email? But this is one we've been looking forward to. He says, congratulations on Simon's new theme tune. And as requested, some more suggestions for guest intros for the podcast. Uh here you go, then. Here's an... Uh... Will you leave my microphone alone? <laughs> <laughs> Here's a po- potential intro from Tegan. Hello, this is the Blue Box Podcast, and they're spending a once-in-a-lifetime experience in the TARDIS whining that they want to get back to Heathrow <laughs> to resume a dead-end job as a trolley dolly so that I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's> fair. <laughs> okay, here's a potential intro from Adric. Hello, this is the Blue Box Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And they're walking unconvincingly so that I don't have to. No one sets out to be a bad companion. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favourite so far. And here's a potential intro from the David Tennant Fan Club. Hello, this is the Blue Box Podcast and they're hating Matt Smith with every last hormone in their bodies so that we don't have to. That that wasn't bad, was it? Was that a Scottish accent? I thought it was too bad, no. Right. <clears throat> we'll look at the ratings. Is. Sorry, we'll have a look at the ratings and see <laughs> see if we've lost a if third it drops. of the UK and the whole of the Antipodean continent. Yes, by Deegan. Are you saying I should stop with the accents? No, 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 no. We're enjoying. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to give it a little verisimilitude. Gives us something. We'll get you. That. Yeah, <clears throat> that was the uh, assistant producer on the first series of Doctor Who. 
fudge. Uh, yeah, very troll. <laughs> Leave it in blank. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Verity Lambert. Verisimilitude. Oh, oh I've got oh. it now. <sighs> Ace, potential intro from Ace. Hello, this is the Blue Box podcast, and they're missing the inconsistency of attacking white supremacists while wearing a bomber jacket and carrying a baseball bat and homemade explosives so that I don't have to. And finally, and Steve says, actually, you better not read this one out as it may be a little too close to the truth for the Blue Box podcast. So, you know, Steve, we're going to read it out anyway. Amy Pond's potential intro. Hello, this is the Blue Box podcast and they're being self-absorbed, high-maintenance bitches so that I don't have to. (laughs) Guilty as charged. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, we don't deal with the truth, do we? Oh, then Steve says, I was going to come up with one for Perry, but having heard JR's attempt at a Salford accent for Eccleston, I fear that his idea of a whiny American accent would be even worse than Nicola Bryant's. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Steve. I hope (laughs) I've proved you wrong with my (laughs) Scottish and Australian tonight. If indeed they were Scottish and Australian. Um, Well, there's loads more from Steve, but let's try and get to the... uh, He talks about Big Finish with a bit, and... uh, then he goes off and talks about Stephen Moffat for a bit. And uh, then he goes off and... <laughs> oh, you know what? Finally, less of your cruel cracks about JR being a northerner, please. I'll have you know that the greatest Doctor Companion partnership ever, Tom and Liz, was 100% Lancastrian. The sixth Doctor was brought up in Rochdale and two other Doctors were Scottish. Though I'll grant you that South Yorkshire itself has contributed nothing to the show. If it's anything north of Exeter, that's north. Mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Somerset enough. counts. That's north to me. Right, we're going to talk about John Nathan Turner, aren't we? We have a massive, massive email from Ben Schneider. Uh, actually, it's three emails, but I've edited before, them all together. Before we start, yeah, is I was going to. Well, go no, I've got an idea. In, in, should we all give like a mark out of ten as to whether we? I know it's a big question. But the big okay. thing that hangs over John Nathan Turner is... Well, can I just finish what I was... Th- I was going to say, I'm not going to read out the whole of Ben's email because it's three pages long. I'm going to try and pick bits out as we go. Okay, I'll edit that. Right. No, it's okay. Yeah, I think I, people don't mind. Just go on. Mark no, out of ten for well, John Nathan say, whether, Turner's... Well, whether, he's, whether we feel he's responsible for... The, the bad. The death of Doctor Who. Whether oh. he is actually... Because I was thinking whether we would think differently by the end of this episode. It's one of the nice things is where we try and look at the good in things. I mean, we all enter a lot of us into mm. enter into this with preconceptions of what he was responsible for. So you want us to well, mull you know, that over as and we're then talking. at the end. But yeah. before we got into it, I was actually going to bring that up. I was going to bring up two points before we even get into John Nathan Turner that I think are a things that we will be wanting to address and B, things that people will be expecting us to address, but also C, things that I'd like to get out of the way at the top that we can come back to, but that we have hit right off the bat. Mm. And one of those was, what exactly is he responsible for? He's a producer, right? Yeah. The producer is ultimately responsible for signing off on the casting, signing off on the scripts, signing off on the costumes, the set designs, the music, Everything else, he's responsible on signing off mm. on that stuff, but he's only responsible in signing off on the stuff that his director or his team bring to him, mm. and the producer himself doesn't actually create 
any of those things. It is a different setup from the modern series because the likes Absolutely, of Stephen Moffat yeah. and Russell T Davis before him, <clears> they were heavily involved in the writing side of things as well. So and indeed, in the old series, the script editor would probably be slightly closer than the producer to what we would now consider showrunner. Yeah. Mm. Although the producer's obviously at the top of the tree. He mm. employs the script editor and he has to, like I say, sign off on any decisions the script editor makes. Yeah. But the producer can only sign off on what the script editor brings to him. The same as, you know, we're going to get into costumes. We're going to get into the change in the music. We're going to get into the scripts, obviously, although I, by and large, I'd like to leave the scripts themselves for other podcasts where we talk about stories. But we're going to get into all these decisions. But what I was going to say in reply, essentially also to what you were saying, Simon, is in a way, no, John Nathan Turner is not responsible for any of those things. They were all created by other people at his bequest, mm. but he didn't create any of those things. But by the same token, yeah, he signed off on every one of those. He was, you know, most of the time he would have been given alternative choices and the choices that he signed off on are the ones that made it to the screen. Yeah, and there are also lots of outside influences throughout the 80s that uh, made a difference to it. Declining. Exactly. When we get into costumes, yeah. it's very easy to look back at 1980s Doctor Who and say the costumes are absolutely ridiculous. But when you look back at 1980s Doctor Who, and then look at Top of the Pops. The costumes yeah, in 1980s yeah. Doctor Who, A, reflect what was going on at the time, yeah. but also actually, when you get right into it, B, we're actually quite ahead of the time sometimes because stuff that Doctor Who was doing in 1980 was turning up in the charts in like 1983. Exactly. New Romantic. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's just outside of JNT's uh, purview, but I mean... <laughs> You look at the Mavellans in Destiny of the Daleks, 1979, the disco robots. Yeah, everybody was wearing that outfit in 1983, I remember. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about 1983 now. I'm making the point that John Nathan Turner didn't innovate as far as bad costumes that reflected what was going on in pop music and the rest of the world mm. are concerned. Mm. Mm. But anyway, we, we'll come back to the question of co costumes slightly later. Perhaps. So did you want us to score well, 1 to 10 whether John Nathan Turner killed Doctor Who? Was that your initial question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, did JNT well, let, kill Doctor Who? Um, well, am I right in thinking that for the majority of people, when they're looking for someone to point the finger at, they will point at him? He does mm. get a lot This is of why he becomes yeah. such a The fashion will occasionally change. Sometimes you'll get periods when fandom kind of sort of rounds on somebody like Eric Sayward instead, you know. Mm. I choose that as an example because of you know my feelings as we've all heard many times and then there are other times when they were pointing at somebody like Michael Grade or Jonathan Powell mm. who would have been you know above John Nathan Turner and who will have you know been the one who actually held the sword as it fell but yeah by and large generally JNT is blamed isn't he I think my perception of him just coming purely as a fan because you know, my opinions you know bigger than anyone else's I always thought of him as a particularly good um, kind of... He could pick up on how to sell the show to the media. And He's he a was good greater. PR, yeah. He'd come out with all these bizarre <laughs> suggestions like, mm. oh, um, we're going to ditch the TARDIS. That's not going to be in it. And, of course, the papers would go completely crazy yeah. on it. And little things like that. And he just really raised the profile in that way. But And do you know what as well? That really works. Yeah, yeah. He Be said that um, any news is good news. Yeah, any news. 
But sometimes some of these news stories, particularly like the one that Mark's just brought up, yeah. you know, we're going to ditch the chameleon circuit and get the TARDIS so that it can change. And of course, at the top of Attack of the Cyberman, they actually do that and it changes yeah. into an organ for yeah. five minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not so just everybody went mad. They wanted to bring the TARDIS back. Yeah, yeah. There were campaigns. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying know, is, Even though it's bad news, it was, it was good for Doctor Who because it raised the profile. But even yeah. beyond that... I mean, you can have ideas that will get Doctor Who in the news that are just bad ideas, but that was not a bad idea. That was a good idea yeah. that actually reinforced how strong an emblem for the show the Blue Police Box was. Mm-hmm. It works inside the fiction, reinforcing it for the characters, because actually subconsciously even perhaps the characters like the fact that it's a Blue Police Box, just as the fans do. That It reflects it's, real it's, life and fiction. It's not actually an idea I'm averse to, really. Apart from the fact we'd have to change the the name of this podcast every week, <laughs> the yeah, organ that's, that's podcast. Oh, oh, oh. The but organ then, uh, podcast. other ideas he had. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Mark. Every time there was a regeneration coming, John Nathan Turner would slip into a conversation somewhere, and you know we might not necessarily pick a man. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, the press go crazy on it. They, they loved it, didn't they? They but do, but but why should I mean? My feeling on that subject is that the Doctor should be a man because that's how the show functions. I think if you changed it to a woman, you would change... You know, I'm not saying it would be wrong in the fiction to change it to a woman, and I'm not saying that I'm a sexist, and I think it should be a man because, you know, it should be a man's role. Mm. But what I'm saying is the way the programme functions, it functions because the Doctor is a man. Not because he's male, but because it's, it's so no, hard to explain. No, it's, it's, it's like saying. 007. You, you can't imagine it the role reversal. It wouldn't work. Yeah, and yeah. the same with Tomb Raider. You prefer, prefer Lara Croft being played by a woman, not a bloke. It's just, you know, the, the roles have been designed mm. for a particular gender in the first place, and you stick with it. It's as simple as that. But... Having said that, JNT slip into the press could be a woman next yeah, time. Yeah. Mm. Great way to generate publicity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And because also, like I was saying with the TARDIS, it kind of also works within the fiction of the programme that potentially it could be a woman. And we kind of know that it's not going to be. But at the same time, we don't know that it's not going to be. I mean, he did work exceptionally hard, like you say, Mark, to mm. to publicise a show, yeah. whether it be good or bad, you know. We're going to be talking about that now. But there were things like he was always on Swap Shop. Yeah. What other producer of any other yeah. TV series was publicly in, in the foreground all the time in those pushing days. their show? Because, of yeah. course, again, that's way ahead of its time because nowadays, Ross T. Davis, yeah. Stephen Moffat. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, John Nathan Turner was, you know, 30 years ahead of his time in that respect. He was a great promoter and a great showman. I'm just not entirely sure he understood a lot of the creative process. And I think that possibly he was relying on people like Eric Sayward and others did Mead and well, yeah. to do the job. I think that's probably where we were going to get to by the end of the podcast. But since you brought it up, <laughs> but since you brought subject. it up, no, not Eric Sayward. I mean, John Nathan Turner as somebody who relied on others to do the creative things mm. for him. Mm. And I, you know, the 1980s, John Nathan Turner was there for 10 years. Actually, he was he was involved in Doctor Who from 1969. I read somewhere. Is that right? Yeah. Space Pirates was the first yeah story Space he Pirates. On, Patrick Trance. So he was kind of in and around yeah. Doctor Who for Doctor 20 Who for twenty odd years. Was he assistant yeah. stage? This is assistant floor, floor manager. Floor manager. Yeah. Yeah. So he should have had. He should have seen the dips, the uh, you know the rises and the falls of Doctor Who through the 70s. He would have seen it happen around him. 
surely he, that should make him the ultimate producer by 1970. Well, yeah, but like Mark says, he is very good at things like organising and very good at things like uh, promoting, but he's not very good. At, he can't write. No, okay. that that was one of the main things, wasn't That's it? probably his biggest shortfall. People yeah. like Philip Hinchcliffe, Barry Letts, Graham Williams, they were all writers as well as producers. Jonathan Turner was not a writer. And that is probably the only thing that stands against him. He wasn't very good at perhaps communicating to the people who were working for him what his ideas were. Because he obviously had ideas. Mm. I mean, you look at the John Nathan Turner years, and regardless of the change of script editor, and there are, throughout those 10 years, there are, you know, big shifts in tone in the programme. But by the same token, throughout the whole 10 years, there is also a a sort of theme that runs through the entire 10 years of certain production aspects yeah which are undeniable and one of the things that always gets brought up and that will probably again something that we'll come back to is the stunt casting yeah and question mark collars well yeah and umbrellas i, I don't know whether that was john nathan turner's <laughs> idea or whether that was an idea that was brought to john nathan turner that he liked and decided to keep possibly i think it was probably June like Hudson's you said idea. it had to have signed it off like you say i think i've yeah. heard i think i've heard on more than one occasion the likes of janet fielding complaining that Someone with the sort of dress sense that revolved around Hawaiian shirts shouldn't be in charge of who wears what in a program. Be careful. There are a lot of people out there that like Hawaiian shirts. No offence, man. But again, I think that's a little disingenuous because while, like I say, Jonathan Turner would sign off on these things, mm. it's people like June Hudson who would design them. It's June Hudson who yeah. came up with Tom Baker's uniform mm. for his final season. And although that's what Jonathan Turner asked for, mm. and although her final creation is not... I, I, think, I think June Hudson said go, go crazy on it. In fact, lose the scarf. That's that's oh I'm, yeah I'm sure that's a bit of yeah. a famous thing again with them. but she I'm said wrong. to him no, he, said he said to her, her. he said like, you know go crazy on it change Baker's costume and if you want to get rid of the scarf that's fine and it's like Whoa. but she kept the scarf in because she thought it was too important Do you know what mm. though that's not I mean this is supposed to just be clothes and in the yeah. end we do end up with what becomes a, by the, certainly by the time of yeah. Peter Davidson a uniform, uniform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but telling June Hudson go crazy with it and lose the scarf is essentially saying get rid of the uniform aspect yeah. because the scarf is like the one thing. But I that think Tom that that's, that's the feeling that we all had in the 80s when, when the new Doctor Who started, Leisure Hive kicked off. It felt different, had different music. We're going to go for all this anyway. Different music, different feeling. Do you know well, what? We're going to be talking for the next hour about what we're going to be going through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got to stop doing that. But, um, you know, it, it felt fresh. It felt different. And you knew it was new blood. You knew that he was excited. Ah, yeah, yeah. He wanted yeah. to get something different yeah. going. So he probably did say something like, you know, Tom Baker's only going to be with us a short while. Let's do something different, radical with the guy. You know, A, take all his humour away. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, let's change his outfit. And yeah, and let's do get rid of the tin dog. Let's do lots of brand new fantastic Tom by things. that point would start to get quite grumpy anyway, so it kind of yeah. informed their decision maybe to make it more serious. I don't know. You know this thing, okay, let's do this. Let's do, did they take too much humour out? Because that season 18, it is a very doer and kind of gloomy season, mm. but it's not entirely without no. humour. No. But when... The pit. Oh, no, it's... That's 17. That's previous. previous. You're talking yeah. things You're right. like Leisure Hive and... Megloss. Mm. Megloss is not without humour. Yeah, but I think that's a hangover from the mm. previous season, though. It is, it? Yeah. but yeah. they could still have written that out of the script. True. And yeah. then State of Decay is a Terence Diggs. And Again, although... A, a callback. Yeah. 
But the, only fun, the only funny thing in that is Adric walking. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the state of decay. And I do is... take your point though about how they could have just made it completely. It's probably one of the worst yeah. cliffhangers yeah. ever, being attacked by bats. <laughs> That's quite a good cliffhanger, isn't it? Oh, there's a swarm of bees. Well, that's quite well, terrifying. That was the time in the Rani. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, they didn't get rid of all the humour. What they, I think, what John Nathan Turner wanted to do was not get rid of the humour so much as try and stamp out the sort of what they call undergraduate humour. Tom's mm. clowning around. I wanted to get rid of the clowning around. And to be fair, I was the age then where I wanted them to get rid of that clowning around. I was old enough when season 17 was on. I think I was, um, what, 12, I think, about the time when the changeover happened. Mm. I was old enough by then to look at the Tom Baker stories in season 17 and think, somebody please tell him to stop doing that. The, what I liked about Tom... I like it now looking back. Yeah, what I liked about Tom was the unpredictability and the humour. Yeah. And he lost the humour. The humour was kind of lost. But he it was also taken. lost the But he lost the unpredictability. So it felt very much like... You could have easily put Peter Davison in from the Leisure Hive onwards. To be honest. Oh, I think you could. And they do get some of the humour back. But now that we're on the subject of humour, the mm. other point that I was going to make right at the start of the episode is... Well, I'll tell you what. Let me see if I can find where Ben Schneider mentions it. In his email. I'll give you what he's got to say. And then I'll come back with my point. And now I've got to... I've read this and it's quite interesting looking at it from his perspective. Because he's in the States, if I remember rightly. Yeah, Indiana. And he's got no kind of no background on the programme. No cultural background. No. no. So he's, he's just looking at it Yeah, he's as... just watching his PBS station and suddenly this programme comes on. He's got no idea what's going on. It's an interesting perspective to mm. watch Doctor Who. And I mean, of course now, any fans who are younger than us will have done this. Anybody who saw it first on VHS or PBS, or UK Gold, or DVD, or whatever, yeah. is watching it without the cultural backdrop that mm. we watched it when we saw when it was transmitted. Exactly. Yeah. But here's the, the point that uh, Ben from Indiana says. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation you guys are going to have on all this. One more thing on JNT, because this was in his PS, and again, something showing my disconnect from British culture. When I eventually did start looking into fandom online back in the early noughties, one of the biggest criticisms I heard applied to JNT was that he was a huge fan of Panto and had essentially turned Doctor Who into said Panto. As an American growing up in farm country, I can say with complete authority that nobody knew the meaning of the word Panto within 100 miles of me. <laughs> it's just something America does not have or do. I often tried to ask people on forums to explain exactly what it is, but I guess it was one of those things you needed to live through in order to understand. I do get it now, and I have to say that, yeah, I can see it. JNT was meant for the theatre, not time and space TV shows. Now, this is where I would like to disagree, really. I think it became... We, we said I don't this think before, it ever did. No, we said this before. It had pantomime elements to it. I had a feeling that it, it could have been a pantomime on telly, but it wasn't. Like you said, you, bro you broke it down on a, a podcast well, back. Uh, what I was going to say was, going back to the subject of humour, when John Nathan Turner took over the television show, the thing that everybody noticed immediately was that he ironed out the humour. Yeah. And it's a big iron as well. And that's not going panto, is Almost it? Almost like a trouser press. No, not right at the beginning. No, but, no, that, but that... I was going to say, that's a kind of... But that humour across those entire ten years, 
that humour, yeah. apart from during McCoy's first few episodes when he was finding his feet and was very self-consciously finding his feet in the way that Patrick Troughton had with the hats and the recorder and what have you. There's a little bit, you know, the spoons and what have you. Mm. But that humour never creeps back in and stays. But Panto, to me, is theatre that, A, breaks the fourth wall by talking directly to the audience, and B, and this is quite significant with Panto, and this is something that never gets brought up when uh, J&T and the Panto Doctor Who debate is talked about, one of the most significant things that um, makes Panto divisible from other kind of theatre is that the men dress as women and the women dress as men. Your leading boy in Panto is played by a woman. Your ugly sisters are played by men. You know, you break the fourth wall, first of all, by talking to the audience, but secondly, by very deliberately gender swapping on the stage for humour. Now, nowhere in JNT's entire 10 years did any of those things come up. So when people say JNT's Doctor Who is pantomime, what they really mean is JNT's Doctor Who can be theatrical, I think but not it, pantomime. It, ha- it has a particular sheen of pantomime. I just it, it, it is a pantomime. Does he actually have a panto yes. company? And you get the stars from Doctor Every Who to perform in it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's is, probably and where, that's where the where link comes from. That's yeah. where the link comes from. Because uh, even yeah. Colin Baker and Bonnie Langford appeared in Peter Pan yeah. at the time where they were I don't know, Bonnie, Bonnie Langford did, but... Uh, Colin, Colin Baker didn't. didn't. Oh, he okay. just went to that production for oh, right. a photo well, shoot. Okay, whatever. The, I think they had Peter Davison as buttons in one of them. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. But here's the thing. I was reading an interview, a contemporary interview with John Nathan Turner at the time, and they asked him about the Panto issue, and this was as early as, um, you know, 1986, this interview was. This wasn't something that was you know, people were talking about afterwards. They were talking about it at the time. And John Nathan Turner said, for 10 months of the year, I'm a television producer on a high-profile BBC One show. And then for two months of the year, I like to just stop, kick back, do panto. And that kind of, those two months away, even though that's hard work in itself, you know, it changes a good arrest. And doing something completely different allows me to then come back to Doctor Who refreshed and carry on with the hard work on that program. Now, you know, yeah, okay. It's there not, are two. Completely it's not. Different... It's not directly pantomime. Doctor Who isn't directly pantomime. Apart from there's the odd pantomime esque uh, villain in it. For instance, Richard Bryars, which I said before. Yeah, which but I, I don't think that's. But I think it's the sheen. It's there's a little tiny. The Merkers definitely bits... pantomime. <laughs> yes, but this is all <laughs> Thank you. Really but there were bits running through it. For instance, the mm. Doctor's costume. Okay, Colin Baker's costume. If you look at um, Widow Twanky. Right, when you go to any pantomime, she's wearing patchwork stuff all over, and it's a symphony of bad taste, which is a quote from Colin himself. And that's exactly what that coat is. If you put that coat on stage at a pantomime, it would be perfect. Yeah, but but I think that's what people are picking up. Jason and his coat of many colours, which is just pants anyway. But it's no, but the coat, coat. the coat of many (laughs) colours, pants of many colours would be more, more interesting. Yeah, but what I'm saying is just because. Yeah, I know. That's, that's an exception to the rule, doesn't... but you know, that's just one musical. We're talking about loads of pantomimes with loads of patchwork. It's it's colourful. It's over colourful. It's a reflection of the eighties. It's a reflection of when pantomime was actually hitting its stride. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, all the aspects that you're saying equate JNT's Doctor Who with pantomime actually don't. They equate JNT's Doctor Who with what was going on top of the pops at the time. That as well. 
Well, I know. I'm not saying that as well. I'm saying the Panto <coughs> reference, because JNT did Panto, it yeah. was very easy to ascribe that word to his Doctor Who. Yes, it when was. When actually, it, it was wide on the mark, yeah. and it was just because of his connections. I'm agreeing but, with you. But, yeah, I think... but looking at some of the casting decisions and the fact, I know that watching it at the time, um, you got the impression that the people acting on it were sending it up, were hamming it up. Which Only again, on very rare occasions. Mm. I mean, you're thinking of Richard Bryars in Paradise Towers, right? Uh, yeah, a certain amount of that. And um... But there were also people like Martin Jarvis on Vengeance on Varus, for instance, who was playing it very seriously indeed. Mm. There aren't that many guest stars like that, in fact, coming from Pantomime, I don't think. There's Bonnie Langford was the main one, I suppose. Um, and then you've got um, Rod, not Rod Hull. Ken Dodd. <laughs> Ken, Ken Dodd. Dodd, thank you. <laughs> How could I mistake those two? Uh, no, Ken Dodd, Dodd. Dodd. Who that I would have But watched, even then, Ken Dodd was being relatively serious, even in a spangly outfit. It was, uh, I think, you know, they I weren't... Think Ken they Dodd. weren't I think Ken Dodd was brilliant in yeah, that I part. He did exactly well. what Should was Should have given him a him. bigger part and made him more yeah. villain. I'm going to have to watch that again because I remember hating him in it. I haven't yeah. watched it for a long time. So but just think. to reiterate my point, <laughs> I think Doctor Who at that period was reflecting things like Top of the Pops, pop music, and, you know, just the sort of glam 80s aspect. But maybe that was and the, the problem. Plan, yeah. Well, no. Because the I 70s mean, didn't necessarily reflect the 70s. Not all of it. John Pertwee possibly did because it was set in contemporary Earth. But when you go into Tom Baker and they fly out into space and Philip Hinchcliffe gets that gothic thing going, oh, they, he wants to avoid as those, much of that. Yeah, no. For those three years, Doctor Who, that's the one time when it starts stops reflecting things like the fashion. Yeah. But as and soon as you get into... Yeah, but when you go into Graham Williams, then it does again start reflecting back. The Nightmare of Eden hoodies. Not yeah. Really. And uh, <laughs> like I said, the Movellans, the disco robots. Mm, and yeah. if you look throughout the Graham Williams tenure, there's kind of... Fair bit of that sort of thing going on. It creeps in throughout. But, but Doctor Who has always... Look at Patrick Tran's haircut, reflecting back from the Beatles on top yeah, of the pops. Yeah. And, you know, Jimmy Savile conscious... haircut. I, William I'm, not, I'm not convinced it's <laughs> as thought out as that. Was that a conscious decision, though, to have Pat Tran's yeah, hair like that? I don't think so. You know it was. Was it, really? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Okay. I mean, I don't, see, I don't think anybody sat down and said, right, we want to make you look like the Beatles. Mm. But they, when they cast Patrick Drowan, they went through a number of different, and what they decided on in the end was to have a sort of cosmic hobo with a bit of a mop top. Yeah. And yeah. where does the expression mop top come from? It's what the Beatles had that nobody else had when they turned up mm. in 1963. A bit late to the party, though, wasn't they, when he took over? Well, this is the thing. Television <laughs> usually reflects things back two or three years after mm. they've happened. If you look at um, John Pertwee, he's reflecting back James Bond meets Jason King. And Adam Adamant. Adam Adamant, yeah. And those are two 60s TV series and a 60s film series. And that's what Doctor Who's doing in the early 1970s. Mm. Always mm. takes a while to reflect. Or usually takes a while to reflect things back. I think the mistake, or not the mistake, but the thing that really sort of pointed this up in the 80s is that it was no longer taking that time to reflect it back and was doing it instantly, if not, as I said before, Slightly before, it was actually the only time when the TV series was, like, you know, predicting fashion in a way. I mean, not to a great extent, but it certainly was at least a little bit. Anyway, that was, you know, Panto. I think that word is used on J&T's Doctor Who, not because it's true, but because it's an easy word. I'm in but agreement. This was, but this was, was definitely further on. I mean, 
if we can rewind to when he first took over, I liked the redesign. I remember at the time, I liked the new credits, I liked the new music. Is this the Leisure Hive? Yeah. I like the new costume. Yeah. It was all very brave. And I'm, you know, I've always liked change. It's what I love about Doctor Who is the change. And I've always found it the most ironic thing of how so many fans, without going onto that subject, don't seem to like change, even though it's probably yeah. the program that changes more than any other. True. But anyway, <laughs> um, but I liked all of that. And the, the panto kind of things creeping in where and when things started feeling a little bit saccharine i think um you know there was some artificial sweetener coming in there that's a good way of describing it actually yeah it it started off feeling you know with kind of the the almost like a stylized bohemian look to it and and then slowly but surely uh, kind of colin baker onwards um, Are you talking in terms of the stories or in, in terms look, of in the, the design, in the choice yeah, of design. casting? I felt. I think it just reflected its decade, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 80s was pretty nasty. If you look, <laughs> if we had. <laughs> really? We all lived through it. And yeah, if we no. had all of Patrick Troughton's stories available to watch on DVD, mm. I think we'd probably be saying some pretty similar things mm. about a lot of those because, you know, look at what we do have the costumes in the Ice Warriors and the Seeds of Death. They are awful. But mm. there's a there's a depth of field thing going on here, if anybody knows what I'm talking about with cameras, okay? Mm. You get that depth of field. Tom Baker's, th- those those three years, I keep going on about the, fi- the Hinchcliffe years and some of the early stuff, black and white stuff, it has a depth of field. It has a f- something, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's got a lot to it. And you go into the 80s and suddenly you've got this very shallow depth of field mm, it's, all, it's almost like the analog versus digital as in music so you've well, got a really thick heavy sound with record players and analog players in the 70s and you get into the and then you get into the 80s and you've got synth synth pop or synthetic yeah. music yeah and it's very weeny and whiny i was a sound engineer I fm synth- drove me mad. fm synthesis yeah was being and used. i was waiting for the time very when flat sound yeah and that all came from doctor who as well with yes. music and all kinds it, it, it no longer felt so organic no, so if you have a full-on orchestra playing, mm. uh, or you know, uh, an orchestra, chamber orchestra, or whatever, playing background music for Doctor Who in the seventies, it feels mm. full. It found it feels big, filmatic, whatever. You get into the eighties, and it's one man on a keyboard. Yeah, going. Yeah, that really makes a massive difference to the feeling of watching Doctor Who. It does. It does. It makes it thin. It does. Technically, of course, Doctor Who in the 1960s was made by a process that only gave you two-thirds of the definition that 70s and 80s cameras would. Yeah, I wasn't talking literally. No, well, I'm just saying. And on the other hand, of course, a lot of this is down to the stories because what you see on screen, no matter how good or how bad it can be, you know, Doctor Who is a cheaply made television programme. You either forgive Mm. it for that or you don't. If you don't forgive it for that, you've got no reason to be watching it because <laughs> yeah. that's true yeah, throughout absolutely. the whole run. Yeah. Uh, but if you can forgive it for the cheapness uh, by which it was made, you have to forgive it because you like the stories yeah. or the characters. Mm. And, you and know, there are some cracking stories during his time on the show. So it's, I wouldn't want it to come across as we're all being super negative. I think but I do that. think that's the one thing where it does fall down by and large. I think there were less good stories in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I think the quality of the writing is less good in the 1980s. And perhaps, and I was, you know, this is something I was probably going to want to bring up, but I think that there's a reason for this. 
And the reason is that television itself was changing. Yeah, There was more sophistication in character. There was more sophistication in what you could expect your audience to accept in story writing by the 1980s. It was a process that was changing all the time. And of course, it's moved on in leaps and bounds now to the point where we can have Stephen Moffat writing the kind of stuff he does. But back then in the 80s, that change was happening. And the quality on the writer, of the writers on Doctor Who at the time was just not such that. And, you know, I don't want to really sort of bang on about the writers being bad because I don't think they were. And I will go on in this podcast and name a lot of people's scripts that I actually liked, yeah, yeah. if you so require. But I think that on the whole, the level of the writing and the script editing, because, of course, the script editor is to stay on top of this, was such that the the sort of technical broadening of the writer's scope was not being reflected back in the scripts that Doctor Who was getting, whereas sort of innovations and sophistications on the screen, which obviously were being brought into the show cheaply, were... Th- therefore less forgivable because whereas they had had advanced to a certain degree they still were fairly cheap but while the stories hadn't advanced to that degree you weren't at the point whereby you could forgive the cheapness of the rest of the production so it all kind of reflected back on itself There's a, a lot of um a lot of that is to do with obviously the script editor and the producer talking to each other i think also i mean it even goes back to when terence dix was in charge um when pat troughton was in the show they struggled a lot to get usable stories. You know, the war games came about because they had two stories that just fell through. So it wasn't something that was unusual, but I think the fact that you had the likes of Terence Dix and Barry Letts and all these other creative people in there, they had more of a handle on it. I think they... They understood it. Doctor Who had a renaissance in the early 70s. The late 60s, we love Patrick Troughton. We Mm love the Patrick Troughton team. And we love those stories for their simplicity. But there's no getting around it. Doctor Who shed viewing figures like cats shed fur in the spring. At the end of the 60s, it was nearly cancelled <laughs> twice, and less people were watching it then than were watching it, well, you know, or an equivalent mm. number to when Sylvester McCoy was a doctor and people would record it. You know, probably more people watch Sylvester McCoy's doctor than Patrick Trout's doctor mm. when you come down to it. Mm. But I think they suffered during JNT's time as well. They just couldn't get. Well, what I'm saying is, in the 1960s, you had this downward slope, and for two years, maybe three years, Doctor mm-hmm. Who was was on a bit of a downer. Much yeah. as I hate to say it, because I love those 60s yeah, shows, me too. but we can't watch most of them back. Mm. So we can't, you know, we t- tend to sort of elevate those stories beyond what they're really probably worthy of. But Doctor Who was only like that for three years before A, it changed into colour, and mm. B, it got a new producer who changed things around. Yeah. Now, J&T wanted to leave Doctor Who any number of times during the 1980s. Mm. He, if he'd have just done five years, four years maybe, the first four years, mm. 18, and then the three Peter Davison years, he would have remem- been remembered afterwards as a brilliant, innovative producer. Mm. But I, I do sympathise with him down. on that score as well, because you know, lesser people probably would have just said stop it and walked away. But you know, they he, kind of ended up saying, look, you've got to do it at the last minute. And he just ended up stepping up to the plate and giving it his best shot. Well, I think he got to the stage, didn't he, whereby he was told that if he didn't do it, they'd just stop it. Is that right? Not only that. You have to stay on, I think I don't know if this is 
as widely known, but they said to John Nathan Turner, right, we need you to do another Doctor Who or else the BBC just won't employ you. Yeah, that's. I'm sure that's what it was. And so, you know, it's no the... right-minded producer is going to say, okay, I'm giving up this job that puts the roof over my head Does... and the food on my plate for a wilderness where I don't know if I'm going to get any other job. I think you said in another podcast, actually, it was something along the lines of Colin Bag had to be let go. You're the man to do it. And then we'll let you go once you've let him go. And of course, oh, Mark was it Mark actually. that said it? And then oh, no, Colin Baker left. And then they said, well, actually, uh, you're going to need to stay on because nobody else is going to take this on or it will stop. And, and they I did think, that too. I think JNT, like I think times. to JNT's credit, mm. he kept the show alive for us. Um, yeah. He gave us, you know, Sylvester McCoy, whether you like him or not, he has a, a massive fan base. He was, he's excellent in the audios. We still have him as a doctor. Still like the guy. But even if some of the stories were and for not a lot great. of people, season yeah. twenty six was the pinnacle of the eighties. And of course, it was luckily, it kind of, or interestingly rather, it headed into a more deep area of the Doctor's history and mystery, which then fed that those wilderness years beautifully with Virgin and novels. Do you know what? Imagine by if doing, it stopped in nineteen eighty six. By doing that, it was where Doctor Who actually probably finally caught up with the rest of television. Going back to what I was saying about three or four minutes ago where it's yeah. finally the sophistication of the scripts. Although there were other problems with those scripts, and mm. we talked about mm. that at length in our seven episodes. Yeah. But there were other problems in those scripts. But the sophistication of the storytelling finally kind of caught up there at the end. Mm. I think in the early sort of John Nathan Turner years, you can see where the writers are trying to be sophisticated in the storytelling. You know, you look at, and I always, this is my best example of it, Mordrin Undead, all those subplots, but none of them connect. You can see that he's trying to write something sophisticated, but it, it doesn't work. You know something? I was doing, it's just slightly off, but it is relevant. I was doing a story time, right? For children today, I work in a library. First time I've ever done it. And I found it really hard because you have ages from two to eight. So oh, how do you well. read a story to, to get all of the, You can't. You have to read three or four. And I feel like uh, JNT was probably struggling with his... Um, his audience as well, because by the end of McCoy, there are moments where you think this is definitely aimed towards five to ten year olds because it's just absolutely ridiculous. And then the themes are much, much older. And with, say, Tom Baker, you've got very adult themes. See, all the Seeds of Doom is very 007, then punching people out and all mm. that kind of stuff. And quite scary. Hinchcliffe wanted to scare the kids. Yeah. Um, you know, and Adams, is, Douglas Adams' sophisticated humour was aimed at the undergrads and, you know, teenagers. So, they had particular areas they could aim it towards, but I think JNT struggled massively. I think one if, of the things it the... did was every other producer, well, not producer, every other era of Doctor Who has always said, first and foremost, you've got to make sure the kids will like it. Uh-huh. And JNT, whatever he, whatever else he brought to it, aiming it at sort of, I think JNT, not JNT, sorry, Philip Hinchcliffe, whatever else he brought to it. And I think he said that, you know, we've got the seven and eight year olds, seven to 12 year olds. Let's try and grab the 14 and 15 year olds as well. Yeah. But he said, but in doing that, we won't forget that we want to keep the seven to 12 year olds as well. And Barry Letts famously said, uh, Doctor Who is for the intelligent eight to 12 year old. You know, eight to 12. Never forget your eight to 12s. Mm. Russell T. Davis said it when he brought Doctor Who back. Yeah. In 1981, 1982, when Christopher Bidmead and then Eric Sayward eventually, after a 
about an eight-month period when they really... But essentially, they forgot the 8- to 12-year-olds. You yeah. know, Philip Hinchcliffe, throughout that period in the mid-1970s, whatever else those stories were doing, they were still scaring the bejesus out of the 7- to 12-year-olds. You look at stories like, and I come back to it, season 20 is the absolute, you know, worst period for this. Name one story in season 20 that scares the 7- to 12-year-olds or even engages them. It just doesn't. And if you're talking about when Doctor Who died, I think it died in season 18 when it got onto the path towards season 20. But it really died in season 20 because that was the year that Doctor Who was supposed to be celebrating 20 years of itself. Mm. And for all that they brought back the Brigadier and they brought back Omega and they brought back the Black Guardian, what they didn't do was get the monsters out and scare the kids. Mm. And I think from that point onwards, Doctor Who had lost the goodwill of the audience. And the audience stayed with it for a certain amount of time. And I'm not talking about the fans, because the fans will watch it, but the broader audience stayed with it for a certain amount of time because they knew what it was and what it was supposed to do. But when, in 1983, Doctor Who was no longer bringing the kids in, by the time you get to 1986, 1987, those older kids aren't telling their younger brothers and sisters to watch it, and they're stopping watching it. And... You know, the slightly older kids than that have stopped watching it because it stopped being good for them. Then all of a sudden you've got a generation by the time mm. McCoy comes across who are no longer interested in Doctor Who. And that's when it became embarrassing in the school ground. Yeah. And when the viewing figures really dropped out Dipped. of the sky. Yeah. 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 Probably to do with that rap in the uh, Greatest Show in the Galaxy. I like Greatest Show in the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I? Trying to reflect yeah. pop. You guys chat amongst yourselves, and I'll go through Ben's email and see if I can find <laughs> something else to bring up. I, I was going to say uh, the actual the five Doctors, okay, which is uh, you know a celebration of Doctor Who, twenty years of the Longleat. I was there at Longleat, okay, for that twentieth anniversary. It was so exciting at my age, so exciting mm. to have mm. all that. The five Doctors was exciting. I, I actually watched it recently and thought. Do you know what? Am I going to look at this as an adult or as a kid? And I thought, no, I've got to do this as an adult. I've done it as a kid many times and enjoyed it on that level. I couldn't. I You can only enjoy it as a child watching that because there are so many plot holes, so many problems with it <laughs> properly, you know, falling think, down the, the slight incline and all that business. I've never been the hugest fan of Five Doctors, but I would not not have it. No. And no. The, by the same token, I think it's but, actually probably Terrence Sticks' strongest script in terms of dialogue. I actually think he's done a marvellous job with what yeah, he's handed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Amazing job. But can I just say, was do you think that was beneficial to Doctor Who, having such a large celebration, such a self-referential season? Do you think it was a good thing or a bad well, thing? Well, you've said before that the show is eating itself. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have... <laughs> Lee loves that phrase, don't you? <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> but Lee, I you're think... a very naughty man. <laughs> I think there are two problems. Uh, and one is that the five doctors coming after the rest of season 20 kind of was a demonstration of what Doctor Who no longer was. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I think the other thing is coming at the end of season 20, not only is it a demonstration of what Doctor Who no longer is, but it's also a celebration of something that has just passed away. Oh. 
Well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's yeah. like you're right, Simon. It's, <laughs> it's, just, it's like you laid a, an It's almost like your battery because out, season twenty <laughs> has lost its ability to entertain and engage. All of a sudden, the five doctors. It's not just a celebration of something that the series used to be. Mm. It's a, it's almost like a wake mm. for the fact that the series has stopped being that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of you know, but there's a fairly similar idea, but you can see my distinction now. Because it's it's full of those little scenes that you you would remember that you would a, expect to find in Doctor like Who, the, the Rustin, you know, the Cyber Massacre and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, being yeah. quite a set piece, really, at the time. And Pertwee in his uh, in his automobile going yes. down a, a country lane, yeah. Which you know, <laughs> and tell you what, even more than that, even more than you know, the sort of visual aspects in the dialogue, Terence Dix gets. Absolutely, what Doctor Who is. There's plenty of comedy, mm. and when I say comedy, I don't mean like belly laugh out loud comedy. Mm. There is moment. plenty of wit in what Terence Dix writes, yeah. and, and although a lot of it's self-referential, plenty delivered, mostly by Pat Tran. Yeah, who's yeah. a genius through that. Together are great, aren't they? But but the <laughs> other scripts in season twenty, you know, by and large, have none of that wit. Uh, very quickly before we go off the five yeah, doctors, on, right. I know this is slightly off on a tangent. Have any of you guys seen the YouTube video by Farmageddon, which is like a recut version of The Five Doctors? It's fantastic. Right. He's edited together the Raston robot warrior scene with the rabbit from uh, Monty Python oh. and the Holy Grail. <laughs> it is I often thought about that yeah. when I watched You've got it. To yeah. Check it out on YouTube. Farmageddon. Okay, thank you for that. Right, completely randomly, Sookie Kark. JNT was a showman producer. He knew... How to keep the show in the limelight, stunt casting repeats, returning monsters, leaking news stories to the press. The fans may not have liked him back in the day. I used to read DWB, Doctor Who Bulletin. Everybody know what that is? Uh, That was like the big fanzine back in the day, DWB. And it was the one that the fans took notice of. And they had basically what amounts to a hate campaign against JNT running for a large part of the 1980s. And, you know, there was a lot of bad blood over uh, DWB. But anyway, uh, back to Suki's email. Just remembering some of the headlines from DWB made me cringe, he says. But, going back to JNT, his whole era seems to be getting a retrospective slap on the back. A reappraisal, in other words. Mm-hmm. Okay. Much in the way that we're sort of trying to do that in this podcast, I guess. Uh, maybe not all his stories, but now that more information is coming out about how bad things were behind the scenes for Doctor Who, you can sympathise with JNT. He kept it going, and he did turn it around in the end via Andrew Cartmel with great stories that kept me playing my videotapes over and over again. Yeah, agreed. And that kind of makes me want to bring something up. Going back to, and we never did this, so we're not going to be able to compare from the start and the finish, are we? Mm-hmm. A 10 out of 10 for whether JNT killed Doctor Who. JNT kept Doctor Who going as a producer for twice as long or more than any other producer who worked on the show. He's not the man who killed Doctor Who. He's the man who kept it alive for 10 years. He's the man who knitted it all together and tried to keep it afloat. The sad thing for me was that just when it had started for me to feel like it was getting back to what, what I really be. liked was when it got axed. Absolutely. I think that's nine times out of ten people would say that, mm. wouldn't they? Nine and, out of ten people. And one big thing is the fact that he preempted the modern style of the programme. Um, he, he kind of understood that it needed to be a brand. 
Yeah. So there was a kind of marketing. Yeah. 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 I've got to say, in the early 80s, when the question mark collar came in, Mm. uh, that everybody hated, I was thinking, you know, and uh, the the stylized uniform of the Doctor over the next three Doctors, you know, uh, I was thinking maybe he's looking at figures here. He's looking at Star Wars. Maybe he could, Mm. you know, cash in on that kind of thing. It didn't seem that that happened necessarily, but it became more of a the public profile uh, thing that he did instead of actually, you know, getting into toys and merchandise more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And coming back to the stunt casting thing, talking about, and this kind of is in the same area as seeing it as a brand, casting well-known actors who can do their stuff is not something that a programme should be ashamed of. And actually, it's one of those things that makes people want to go back and revisit old stories I mean, that's just what's happening now, surely, throughout the entire run since well, yeah, RTD's so come was, back. Well, that's what I was coming to, to compare it to what Russell T. Davis yeah, does. Yeah. That is what Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, probably yeah. Stephen Moffat actually even more so than Russell T. Davis, do just on a daily basis as a matter of course. Hmm. John Nathan Turner was pilloried for it. I'm not but, sure if they've made that, uh, any mistakes, have they, in casting big names at the moment? I don't think so. Has anybody... Uh, well, no, go back to the 80s and say Peter they K. made big mistakes in the 80s. Peter Kay. Well, Peter Kay himself famously said he that does. he didn't like what he did in that. No. And that's fair enough. So, But I don't think it was a mistake casting him. I just don't think he got what he needed to do right. Yeah, yeah, no. But going back to the 80s. Go back to the 80s. What were the big mistakes in the casting in the 1980s? At guest casting. He's a okay. Goddard. Yeah, I'll give you that one. Yeah, what Beryl about the Reed, one that... maybe. Sorry, Beryl Reed. A lot of people oh, actually yeah. think she pulled that off. No, I. No, I, I, we said this before. <laughs> she I think <laughs> she'd been better off being the second in command, mm. and you know somebody else being in, in in command of that ship. Perhaps so. But Earthshock's a story that a lot of people have a lot of love for. Yeah, I do. And I think they will. Um, if it's a story you like, you tend yeah. to forgive things. Yeah, like, I would agree on that. Who's the yeah. one who karate chopped the Merca? Oh, oh, Ingrid um, Pitt. Yeah. Ingrid Pitt. I love Ingrid Pitt. Mm. Bad casting. Mm. But bad. Yeah, but that's, again, I'm, is that bad casting or is that just a bad story? Faith, Faith Brown. Faith Brown. Mm, yep. <laughs> I know we disagreed on this one, <laughs> Sarah Green, no. No, no, Sarah no. Green was okay. not, she was all right, actually. No, that's she? not bad casting because they both no. did okay. I'm saying which were the ones mm. that they cast who were absolutely awful? Well, I wouldn't say it was awful, but I just didn't get Rodney Buse in the Dalek one he did with Peter Davison. I didn't oh, mind that. No, he was okay. It. I yeah. buy it. So somewhere no, between the script it straight. and the All director, is people play it straight and don't play it up. No, I agree. He wasn't hamming it. Did you it think just... Ingrid Pitt played it up in Warriors of the Deep? Then um, I can't remember. What, with her or Reed in there? No, shop. she was really restrained, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're pulling one scene out for humour, but during the rest of that story, is she hamming it up or is she? Yeah, I think she is a little bit. Fa- I think she fa- is a little bit. It's like with children's television. I mean, it is children's television, but. Yeah. You should never patronise the audience, and you should no. play it straight. Regard and the same as good comedy, it should be played straight. If you straight. just if you just look at you know ten years before that, say Image of Fendal or something like that, okay, mm. one mm. of those oddity kind of stories which don't get a lot of press. But you've got Coronation Street actor in there. I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was excellent in that. I thought because he just played it utterly straight. All was, he acted sorry. it. Uh, Image, of, Image Fandel. of Fandel. Oh yeah, okay. the Corey actor, which I can't remember the name of now. I'm afraid, but um, I remember ten that years one after. for Benedict Cumberbatch's mum. Was it his mum? Yeah, oh. Wanda Ventham. Wow. Oh right, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, she was lovely. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I got just a bit just just uh, just pause the while well, we have a think about that. No. Uh, <laughs> But it then ten years later, special uncle, ten years later, seven <laughs> year, years later, five years later, whatever, 
you suddenly get, like you say, Simon, people uh, reading the script and going, oh, I'm going to be over the top here. I mean, yeah, this is this, yeah, this, is this, is, this was this probably yeah. encouraged because we know that Anthony Ainley mm. was doing restrained performances. And then from the top, JNT apparently was saying bigger, bigger. And uh, Anthony Ainley was basically being slightly pantomime villain through the, through the 80s. Yeah, I'll go along with that. Yeah. Mm. JR's Well, I was just going something. through Ben's emails to try and find something else that we can bring up. Uh-huh. Because I don't want at the top of the podcast i said we were going to be reading from ben's email and so far we've had like one quote haven't we (laughs) so here you go this is quite contentious and something worth talking about even though we've done a podcast on it it's worth talking about this in terms of jnt when colin baker came on board i nearly stopped watching he says now keep in mind i was viewing these in an information vacuum he was watching on pbs and fast forward he basically watched the entire series and something like a year or two years. Wow. So, I had no idea about backstage politics. From my point of view, says Ben in Indiana, it had only been a few months since I had last seen Tom Baker, so I therefore found the Sixth Doctor's character and his stories to be so out of step and contradictory from what I had thought the premise of Doctor Who was, I honestly figured Colin would be the last, the one who would surely have killed the show and cancelled it. And you know what? That one's so far from the truth because it nearly did come to the end during Colin Baker's. Yeah, but I mean, I would have understood that say in his first episode where we, I think we covered this in six, where he was so utterly out of character and trying to strangle his own companion, which I, I know, think is a I huge think you're mistake. I think being too literal here. Oh, really? Yeah, I think he's just saying on the whole, the tone of the Colin Baker years were out of step with what Doctor Who was about. Yeah. I think yeah, you just qualified that as well, with what you said about he's watching it almost in fast forward, whereas... Hmm us watching it over here as it went out obviously it was a longer period yes. and we kind of slowly adjusted to it because for you know 20 years the doctor is the stranger in town who turns up saves the day and wanders off to his next destination mm. whereas during the colin Baker years you know there's quite a few you know the doctor turns up and everybody knows who he is already or the doctor doesn't save the day or the doctor doesn't even show up there's at least two stories in the Colin Baker years, and there's not many stories in the Colin Baker years. Or well, some of his personalities in conflict with the very idea of what Doctor Who was originally. Well, yeah, yeah, but yeah, there's, so there's, that's probably what. But there, 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 said, there are stories in the Colin Baker years where the Doctor doesn't actually have any effect whatsoever on events, which I know you can get away with doing a story like that every once in a while, but if that becomes part of what the show is doing. I mean, what does the Doctor do in Attack of the Cybermen, even? Yeah. and well, He certainly doesn't do anything in Revelation of he the Daleks. He runs up and down a lot of alleyways, doesn't he? Yeah, Going and the in wrong the way. second episode, he gets chased around <laughs> the cyber tombs, and basically mm. it's all about... The, do you know, that's exactly character. what I was thinking when, we, when I was watching Attack of the Cybermen. I don't what were you thinking? What was I thinking? I was thinking exactly that. I was thinking, what's he doing here? He does he need to be in this thing at all? No, he doesn't. Yeah. Just give, just give Perry a gun. Push him to a scene. Well, you know, in the end of that story, in a bikini. In a bikini. it is the Doctor who fires the last shot that kills the last Cyberman, but, you know, it could have been any character doing that. Yeah, yes, that wasn't very nice either. That was no. a character too. Um, any other areas that we have yet to cover? I mean, as far as JNT as a producer. We have talked a little bit about music. 
I mean, music. Doctor yeah. Of Distress. Actually, yeah. you talk basically about Kef McCulloch. Yeah, mm. very Kef. Don't like. And you stuff. talked about the sort of readiness of the um, early synth scores. Mm. Some of Mark Hare's stuff worked. Do you think so? Yeah. Yeah. Well, better than what went before. But there was a development in the JNT years between the music that they were having at the start and the music they were having at the end. I know he, yeah, John JNT specifically requested electronic music, and they moved away from. Yeah. The organic sound. Yes. But that's okay in the... There was no was progression like in, in the, the er- 70s, by the way. What was it like in the early 80s, the music? I'm just trying to think. It, had, it still had a little bit of depth to it, didn't it? It did, well, yeah. Think of, yeah. I didn't think Can't it did. Can't really think of it. You know, no. I, that was the one thing... Well, not the one. One of a number of things. But that was probably the primary thing I noticed when the Leisure Hive came on mm. as a 12-year-old. Did you like the theme tune? The new theme tune? Not really. I thought it was... Yeah, oh, so what the nice. Peter yeah. Davis, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the early 80s one? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Mm, in yeah. fact, when I hear that, that to me shouts Doctor Who more than it does Tom Baker's, actually, even though but I love that theme. They'd mm. got rid of the alien aspect of the music yeah. and turned it into a synth pop tune. Yeah, you said it became with more the titles, space as opposed to more fantasy. just stars instead of time vortex. Yeah, it's like they've, t- you know. It's like the in 1980 they made a decision to take the Doctor Who out of Doctor Who. Well, if you look at the visual aspect of it, I think it's been said many times. When John Nathan Turner came in, one of the first things he wanted to do was change the opening section because you'd had the same piece with Tom Baker yeah. for all those years, <laughs> and bless him, you know he obviously looked quite different at that point from oh. how he did when he first took on the role and of course that was probably the longest the opening title sequence stayed the same yeah form. yeah because so, previously you'd had the only other one was four years of john pertwee mm-hmm. before it changed with him the last year before the end mm-hmm. it's just on a negative note i can't forgive the wink the In sylvester mccoy no, wink i can't that, forgive that, is, that, wink. that is the worst credit sequence I think yeah, I know that Jay, well, Jay, title I like sequence that. credits come at the end, yeah, Simon. T- right. Titles, <laughs> yeah. um, and you're not pedantic, Jay. No, we <laughs> <laughs> were having a discussion the, uh, before the podcast. No, that's one of those things that people always say. It's kind of become a convention to say credits when people mean titles. Yes, that's true. Um, well, keep correct. You've, you've only got to look at the Sylvester McCoy logo to see that there was a thing about branding. You no, know, well, and I'd it all see... coincided with the the um, Duplo. Is that what they were called? Duplo. Dapol. Dapple, Dapple figures. <laughs> well, this was more... Andrew <laughs> Carmel was trying to bring a comic book sensibility to the yeah, graphic novels, it. 2000 AD and stuff. That's where they were seeking inspiration from. Even Dot Two magazine was embarrassing to buy because of that logo. For me. Yes, it was. I do remember. But that it logo... Looked like a, it looked like a kid's comic. I did still yeah. buy it now. But did you think 2000 AD was a kid's comic? No. Because the Doctor Who logo in the Sylvester McCoy years is supposed to be of the same ilk as things like the logos oh, you have. Work. Yeah, it's funny. The 2000 AD logo it was there from the 70s. It was pretty much the same as it always had been. So therefore, you forgave it or you just knew it. It's like, to me, it was part of the furniture. You just accepted it for being that logo. But within the pages of 2000 AD, it was changing and it's always quite adult. You know, it's trying to edge towards 12 to 16-year-old kids, I think, as opposed to the younger audience. Whereas Doctor Who wasn't really, that's what I was saying. There's, there seemed to be a conflicting yeah, thing. S- JNT had a... Specifically about the title sequence, though. Yeah, it felt ch- childish. Uh, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It was... But they're trying to do slightly more advanced they were trying to do, yeah. stories. Yeah. Well, no, so the Curse doing, of Fenric no, and the sexuality of Ace. Yeah, doing more sophisticated stories, 
but by the same token, for yeah, once, Doctor Who began to be for children again. Uh, you had to be, try, trying to be too, too many different things then. Well, maybe, yeah. Yes. It's yeah, no, you know, uh, no good having a front end that looks like an episode of Why Don't You when the, the programme <laughs> is trying to be... That's exactly what it felt like. But for, yeah, it goes yeah, yeah. back to what Hinchcliffe said about trying to retain the 7 to 12-year-olds and get the 14 and 15-year-olds yeah. as well. Mm. Doctor Who, it you know, the monsters were back, the scares were back, and the stories that you could understand who was good and bad were back. Yeah. yeah. So what you're saying is they went out and did something that's boring instead. They actually decided oh. to give it an edge. <laughs> yeah. Are we allowed to put the theme tune of, of that at the end? Because that was such a good theme tune. Why don't you? Um, <laughs> the thing of it is, though... Swap shop. By that oh, time... American what, viewers, look up Why Don't You. It was a oh, God. We're going to have to knock this episode on the end. No, no, no. Because no, no, can't no, get a serious comment well, out what, of anybody. Once you've said what you said, we, we, we ought to just slightly touch upon um, Colin Baker, all the appearances of the Doctor. I don't want to touch Colin Baker. <laughs> they, they went out of their way to appear on a lot of TV programmes for kids. You know, small kids, Swap Shop, uh, Saturday Superstore was another one. Yeah. Jim will fix it. Jim will fix it. Yeah, all of these things fixed for, for the Sontarans. Mm. So it was aimed at children. But, you know, you had, like you say, the same words. stories influence. weren't. That's the trouble. Revelation yeah. of the Daleks, not really a kid's mm. But in McCoy, uh, they found their, or they tried to find a way of giving you stories that were sophisticated enough for an adult audience. Um that were exciting enough for a teenage audience and that were engaging enough for a child's audience. They were trying to do that again. They hadn't tried to cater for all those three audiences for a good five years before that. What I'm saying is you suddenly had stories with monsters in. And not only monsters, monsters that were recognisably monsters that kids could not necessarily imitate, but at least remember when they got into the playground on a Monday morning. Who's going to go into the playground on a Monday morning remembering the garm? You know, from you know, oh, looking at me blankly. I remembered it. But what I'm saying is, you know, With the embarrassment, the <laughs> creepy clowns in Greatest Show in the Galaxy, right? Or even the dragon in Dragonfire, right? These were exciting monsters. The creepy clown the... was a great idea, but then you had a no, no, werewolf. Don't and then go you away from my point. Of... Okay, go on. But <laughs> they, these were things Give that kids could engage with. Things like the clowns yeah. and the dragon. And then the story, which is the more sophisticated story about the emotional reasons for why all these things are going on, and the ace story is maybe something that the adults could engage with. And the stuff that comes in between, the exciting stuff, there's a chase, there's a hunt, there's a surge. Stuff that teenagers can engage with, right? Doctor Who, at least by this point, is trying to engage the entire audience again, which it hadn't done for five years. But the trouble was, because the damage had been done by those yeah, five... Too late by that point, yeah. These people are no longer watching to know that they're being engaged with. Yeah. And I just think they... You know, you say about the title sequence, okay, mm. it doesn't work brilliantly, but I think it was at least an attempt to try and indicate that this engagement was about to recommence. Mm. Mm. Okay, so just a quick what if. Do you think if Carmel came in at the beginning of Colin Baker's era, it would have made a difference? No, I think the damage was done by the end of... Peter Davison. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think the damage was done in year 20. You know, season 20. I think. What kind of damage? Well, it just 
It We're quite a damaged man. Well, have you not been listening for the last half an hour? <laughs> it no. lost the goodwill <laughs> of its regular audience. And the regular audience, regular audience, <laughs> you, began, yeah. you know, some of them stayed with it for a while, hoping that it would get better, get its mojo back, come back to what it was, but began to drift away and just drifted more and more. And, you know, ultimately what happened was when you had the hiatus year, then that was for a good number of people, the point where they said, okay, I've stuck with it for the last three years. I'm done now. And, you know, that was the point where the viewing figures literally did plummet, mm. you know, by about half between one season and the next. But I'm saying but that... America took it by storm mid-80s. But I'm saying that across the whole period of Peter Davison into Colin Baker, that was an ongoing process that had begun with season 18 and that was kick-started by season 20. Anyway, I've already said this earlier in this yeah. podcast. So, so, so it may have been failing in Britain, but... It was uh, becoming a, a hit in America, wasn't it? Because it started being played on the... Yeah, he was showing Tom Baker stories. Yeah. But because Tom Baker was on, they, you know, the interest was up that it was still being made in Britain. So the convention circuit popped up and they all disappeared over there to kind of, you know, talk about stuff. And there was this massive kind of, well, you know, America's interested. So that there was an influence there. There must have been an influence. JNT must have thought, Americans, okay, what can I do to get the Americans watching the modern series? Oh, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll bring along Perry because <laughs> she's a fake American. That'll help. <laughs> well, that's a bit... <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But the, uh, what the Americans liked about Doctor Who was its Britishness. Its mm. Britishness. Yeah. He never... JNT, I don't think, ever really did try and pander to the Americans. He tried to keep its its Britishness, mm. you know, its appeal, it, and he. I don't think he. I don't think he pandered to the Americans in that kind of a way. No. I think I don't know whether Perry was deliberately, you know, they picked an American because they wanted to appeal to the Americans. I'm I sure think they just done. No, I think it's more that they just done an Australian and thought, okay, the they, Australian market. Well, if you want Possibly. to see it. <laughs> But this is this is what someone was saying earlier about casting mistakes, possibly. I mean, I'm not saying that Nicola Bryant was a casting mistake as such, but she wasn't oh, an English with no, an American no. accent. Janet Fielding. No, not, not a mistake then. But it's kind of like you say, trying to use casting to up the profile of the show as opposed to actually looking at what this character is supposed to be within the story. Mm -hmm. That's a very producer thing to do. Well, if you say so. I... You know, they they wanted to try and show that Doctor Who what I mean was is not just some, somebody about at the, the top counties. has an idea. You say, right, what I want is this, 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 and this. Okay, bring it on, and then he leaves it to say the script editor or somebody below him to sort it out and make it all come together, like Sidney Newman did back in the sixties. Yeah, I mean, that's what Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat do now. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. But the the, the mistakes that were being made was that. J&T wasn't, like you say, he was signing everything off. If you're going to be involved with something that long, Doctor Who, you're going to see, surely you've got to look ahead and think, well, is that a mistake? Would that be a mistake? How would people feel if I did this? How would, how would people feel if I did that? The soapy elements of Peter Davison, the arguments, the bickering, the colourful coat, the ultraviolence from Sayward. Did he not have any influence at all? I think he's the producer of the thing. So lots of mistakes oh, he, being made. Yes, but he thought it was working. 
until mm-hmm. it was too late. I mean, Doctor, when well, maybe he... that was the problem then. Yeah. <laughs> That you didn't realise that it wasn't working. But I thought we were late. talking about the casting of an Australian and American. That's all part of it to me. Well, you know, uh, let's go back to the talking about the, because this is a very salient point, about the growing sophistication of television and the television audience's expectations. What, what, was, what else was there at the time? I mean, at the time that it really started. I know you say the dive had started a lot earlier, but where it really did dive, what else was going? We had Buck Rogers that it was competing against, wasn't it? it was the, yeah, the likes of the A team and Knight Rider and that sort of stuff. A lot of American imports. Mm. Yeah. High, yeah, up, yeah. high octane. Good fun. Which comes back to what you were saying about it looking quite flat in comparison. And also, Studio of course, band. towards the end, they put it up against Coronation Street, which was not helping things, was it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whose decision was that? Didn't have any PBRs back then, did we? It was a case of... I am going to make this point about Perry, and I'm going to make it now. (laughs) In the 1980s, (laughs) there was a, not self-conscious, but there was a growing, you know, decision made to demonstrate that Doctor Who was no longer just going to be concerned with invasions of the home counties. And that's where foreign filming and the casting of foreign companions comes from. It's not necessarily to appeal to foreign audiences. You don't go to Spain and film in Spain because you want a lot of Spaniards to watch Doctor Who. You go to Spain and you film in Spain because you want a little bit of Spain to be brought to Doctor Who. And in the same way, you would cast an Australian as a companion because you want to show that pretty white middle-class English girls aren't all that Doctor Who does anymore. It's like when on the news you would once upon a time have only had received pronunciation news readers, and nowadays you've got all kinds of accents on the news. In Doctor Who, in the early 1980s, was the point at which it changed from everybody being white and middle class and well-spoken to differing aspect, uh, different accents, different characters, Wasn't... different class, and just an Australian... So you American. don't think that JNT's decisions were to make the program more high profile and more, um, you know, um, sellable to the rest of the world? Yeah, by using that kind of method. But that, I'm saying that's part of what was happening in television in general. Okay, wasn't there a rule coming in from the BBC where where they came to budgets and things like that with their programs where they could do one piece of filming abroad wasn't there no he was just he was just good at working the budgets out where he could squeeze a little here and squeeze a little (laughs) there and free up a little extra something to do with them having permission to go to one i think also no it's just once a year was as often as they could afford it also the tegan thing as well was i think they were hoping to try and get some co-funding from uh, an australian broadcaster as well and they did in the end they got co-funding from australia on the five doctors Really? Just on the one story. They couldn't work out the logistics of getting it across an entire season. But if you look at the modern series now, we've got obviously BBC America involved. But Five Doctors being a one off, they uh, got co funding from Australia on that. Anyway, we desperately seem to be running out of steam here, don't we? So we'd better call it a night on JNT. Okay, out of 10, Simon, Mm. was JNT responsible for the death of Doctor Who in 1989? Ten being yes. <laughs> well, I'm surprised. I press surprised. This is what I've kind of preempted, and I've surprised myself. And I think it's probably about a four. What would you have said at the start? 
uh, maybe a seven or an eight. Uh, go on then, Lee. Um, yeah, about three or four. Three, I'd say. I don't think he had that much. I don't think it was him that killed Doctor Who. I think it's all everything around him that happened. Would that have been what you'd have said at the start? Yeah, I kind of knew a bit about it already and I had a feeling about it, yeah. Mark? Probably say a five. Yes. I would... I'm probably going to go higher then. I would he, say he chose the people six or seven. ultimately responsible for yeah, yeah. killing it off, although he wasn't directly responsible. Yeah. Although we've tried to defend him in certain ways, mm. and myself has tried to defend him but, in certain ways, you cannot get past the fact that it was him who employed these people. Yeah, yeah, the buck stops. Mm, the yeah, buck absolutely. stops, but, you know, we're all different, aren't we? I do think he... You know, the one thing I will absolutely say in JNT's favour is I do believe he loved that programme and he gave, you know, everything that he was able to give to keep it good. Mm. It's just that, you know, you can love something as much as you like, but you can't make it love you back. A four. <laughs> a four. A four. A four. Four out of ten. Four out of ten. All oh, right, you'd already said that. I said three. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going <laughs> Are you changing your mind again? Creep back up again. If bit. we do another round, we can maybe get us all up to ten <laughs> out of ten. I'm useless. I'm like that bloke in the fast show where he can't agree. <laughs> so if you go on and on about how wonderful uh, J and T is, I'll just change my number. Yeah. And if you. Down, I'll change my number. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no will of my own. <laughs> you all like Easily the master. <laughs> right, we should say goodnight then. Okay. Oh, should we have a little word about next week's podcast? Oh, yes. Next week's podcast is going to be something just a little bit different. Hmm. Something I don't think has ever been attempted on a podcast before. Maybe. Not that we've heard. <laughs> no, I don't think any of us know of... I mean, yeah, we don't know all podcasts, so it's probably happened millions of times. <laughs> but it's something we've certainly never tried before. And we hope you like it. something, yeah, something just a bit different, yeah. Mm. And if you don't like it, don't worry, we'll be back. It's a one-off, yeah, so yeah. it won't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, next, next week's podcast will be something just a little bit different. So, And leaving you with that thought, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark, and I got away with not doing on the spot for another week. <laughs> I know, it was Simon. Oh, yeah, but that reminds me, on the spot. Get your watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Mark! That was the oh. most ridiculous timing ever, wasn't right. it, Mark? Okay. <clears throat> oh, I don't believe you. Right. I can't believe I forgot as well. How far start do you want the episode. To put my foot up your so, I've done it twice. <laughs> Lee's done it once. Lee's done it twice. I know oh, Lee's done it twice as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I've done it twice. Yeah. Mark, I have done it at all. Fingers, yeah. You'd better give that to me because this week, Mark, you for the next 60 seconds will be talking about The Awakening. Okay, so that's Peter Davison and, uh, oh, who is it? Janet Fielding and. Oh, that was it, wasn't it? This is going back to visit. Um, Tegan's uncle in Little Hodkin, I think. And it's probably very famous for that bit that they kept showing on Noel Edmonds where they drove the horse and cart through the uh, the gateway leading into the church, which wasn't that funny. Um, <laughs> and I remember the malice because that got into the TARDIS and it was kind of hanging about on the wall and spewing green vomit everywhere. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
there's a bigger version inside the church and there's all this dry ice everywhere and lots of round heads wandering around sort of threatening to kill people um slightly sort of brought back memories of the demons bit those because of that kind of old village thing um it was all right it wasn't terrible but it was all right Ah, thank you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> that was worth waiting for. Yeah, you did about oh, thirty no. seconds on the cast. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> name the cast. If you're da- if you're in doubt, name the cast. You didn't yeah. mention the brilliant peasant. <laughs> oh yeah, shame. Never mind. Never mind. See, one thing you did mention: the green goo. That was a big thing in the nineteen eighties. Mm, yeah. Video nasties were about. And for somebody in Doctor Who, I don't know who it was. I'd like to point the finger at a certain person whose initials are ES. But on this occasion, I don't think I can. But somebody in Doctor Who certainly was getting just a little bit too eager to make Doctor Who like a video nasty. And there was a period for about two years when just about every time anyone or anything died, there was just green goo everywhere. <laughs> Dead shares in green goo. It was, it was a bit like the foam in 1967. <laughs> right, on that note, I, you know, we've already said goodnight. So, you know, next time, special podcast. We'll see you then. You can contact us by email via blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Fraser Hines, and like Colin Baker, I don't have to listen to this blue box cast, iPod cast, whatever, but it is either. <laughs>